So this is part two. Part two. Um, and it is from a series I've been doing, except for Father's Day, that's been focused on the Beatitudes and the importance of the Beatitudes. And this is part two of surviving darkness. Surviving darkness. And the reason why I picked that title is because, you see, the irony behind we as a church in this world is that the world thinks that we live in the dark, that we live in the dark ages, that they're progressive and that we are regressive and that we actually hold people back. That is the way they see us. But the reality is we actually see it in reverse. And so that contrast sometimes is what's difficult. That is what's difficult for us to navigate. And when I was going through the Beatitudes, and the last three Beatitudes talks about us being peacemakers, and despite us being peacemakers, we will be persecuted. We will suffer. And that is, that is the reality. That is the reality. Because there is a contrast between light and darkness. There is. There is a contrast between light and darkness. But James 1.5, if you can put it up on the screen, James 1.5 says this. Hopefully they'll be able to put it up on the screen. Not James, sorry. John 1.5. Sorry, guys, I confused you back there in the media room. John 1.5, I gave you that. John 1.5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness. And you see, the light is more noticeable the darker things are. Do you understand that? The darker things are around you, the more noticeable the light is. So don't fret when darkness is around you, when you have storms. Because that is when the light can shine. That is the opportunity. And so last week, we talked about a few things. We talked about how we as a church sometimes confuse what it is to be light in this world. And we have to start thinking about what it means to be a light for each other first before we can go out into the world and be in light into the world. And I, I actually read this exercise. How many of you uh, remember the exercise I, I did last week on, on the Roman life? You guys remember that? I went through a list of a whole bunch of things about what Roman life and society was like. And I, then I said, guess where I, where I live? And a lot of you said Toronto, today. Yeah. Scarborough. <laughs> you know, somebody said Etobicoke where I live, you know. But it's true. You know, life has changed so much. And the signs that... Christ has given us, we start to see them. But morally, the contrast between light and dark hasn't changed people. And this is something that's so important, so, so important for us as a church to realize. We can't look back to the good old days. Because in reality, there were no good old days. We have to stop that. See, that, 
That thinking holds us back. Because the, it's never been good. The only good is in heaven. And the heaven that's in you. Any goodness comes from the Lord. And all goodness. Maybe the good old days is because, you know, if you're getting older like me, the joints didn't hurt as much. I can understand that. But the good old days I'm talking about are, we sometimes think that in the past things were better. Yes, there's certain things that get worse today than they were in the past. But there are certain things that are better today than they were in the past. There were. We had a lot, a lot more issues with understanding culture and race 50 years ago than we do today. That has improved considerably. I remember reading old books. I mean, you guys, some of you know that I've been at Logos for a long time, not as long as some people in the church. Um, I've been here a few years. Before that, I was downtown. But before that, I was actually on the pastoral staff and was here at the church. I, I actually... Um, helped build part of the uh, gym here. I was on the roof. Man, that was a scary thing. You know, I said, I'll volunteer to work with the carpenters. Boy, when I was up on that roof looking down, I was like, wow, I'll never do that again. But, you know, I remember going downstairs and, and my wife and I were going through some old Sunday school books and they talked about welcoming immigrants. And the way they worded it to the teacher threw us back. Christian books. So the good old days not necessarily sometimes that great. And we talked about that last week. And that the same issues that the church battles today and what God has called us to be and what the world is, those same issues existed 2,000 years ago. Now, some things are scarier, the kind of things that, they, that they're doing with children today and in schools. But pedophilia was practiced back then. And some people are trying to bring it back. And guess what? You think there, was a, there wasn't a problem back in Moses' time with regards to cross-dressing? Just look at Deuteronomy 22. It actually says, right, a man, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, and a man shall not wear a woman's cloak. Now, that's 3,500 years ago. So you see, this battle is ongoing, and it's been here ever since. And you might say, wow, that's a long time. Not in the eyes of the Lord. The Bible says that a day is like a thousand years. It hasn't been a long time. For us, it feels like that. But we are called to battle. And the reason why I point this out is because when we start to think like that, it changes how we relate to others. Do you understand what I'm saying? And at one point in time, we even said, hate the sin but not the sinner. And what I've seen is I've seen that the church struggles with that. Some people can do it, but most can't.
And so what I want to do today is I want to deep dive deep into the scriptures because that's one thing that I feel, and you know it deep down in your heart, it's one thing that the church is losing, is the understanding of the scriptures. And it is the one thing that holds us strong. It is the one thing that helps the light and the darkness shine. Otherwise, we just go with the flow. In the Beatitudes, it says we will be peacemakers. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, we talked about last week the difference between how the Pharisees looked at life and how Jesus did. And one of the things that we looked at is the Pharisees were always, were always worried about how they looked, how they were perceived, who you hung out with. It was all the external stuff, remember that? All things that were external. And what did Jesus say? He says that these are men who are teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And we do this as a church all the time. Guess what? In the same way that for the last 3,500 and 2,000 years, there has been a stark contrast between the church and the world, and they still struggle with the same things, we, the church, still struggle with the same things. We do. We still sometimes create doctrine out of man's commandments. We sometimes take, and, and, and I've seen this, we take stuff that, the, that comes from the pulpit and we assume that it is doctrine, that it is from Scripture, that that is the way to interpret Scripture. And unless you actually read the Scripture, you wouldn't know the difference. You wouldn't. And this is what Jesus was saying. You know, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. the religious leaders of the time, where Jesus was more concerned about us on the inside, about unforgiveness and greed and unfaithfulness and pride and all those things that hold us back. Because from the inside, that transformation is what changes us on the outside. It's not the external things. It's the internal things that need to be transformed. And that was a stark contrast. And that is still today the issue. And so I want to bring us to this understanding that the Pharisees and Sadducees of 2,000 years ago haven't gone away. They're just called something different today. And sometimes you can't even know who they are. And let me describe to you a little bit about the Pharisees and Sadducees. We know more about the Pharisees and we know less about the Sadducees. But let me, so the Pharisees we know. The Pharisees are the very religious. The 613 laws, right? They were the ones that says, how come you don't? Why do you do this on the Sabbath? These are the ones that created even laws that go against God's law. Remember, that was one of Jesus' teachings. So you have the super-religious, the super-legalistic in the church. That is the one thing that is so, so dangerous. It's controlling. It's abusive. 
I have seen abusive bullying coming from religious leaders. I have. I have counseled people who have come from situations like that. It happened 2,000 years ago and it still happens today. And what we need to do is be aware of it in this church so it doesn't happen here. We never should let that happen here. The second thing that hasn't changed is the Sadducees. Who were the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees. What's the best way to describe a Sadducee? Well, the Sadducees today, I would say, are the progressive churches. See, the Sadducees at the time were Hellenistic. They were the religious leaders who said, hey, there's nothing wrong with mixing what we believe with the world. They were buddy-buddy with the Romans and the rulers before the Romans. That's why the Pharisees hated the Sadducees because the Sadducees didn't want to follow rules. They liked the world. They liked the comfort of the Romans. The Romans liked them because they said, ah, you guys are... You guys look like us, you, you act like us, you think like us, you believe like us. And so you had these two extremes, the Sadducees on one side and the Pharisees on the other side. And guess what? The church still has the Pharisees on one side and the Sadducees on the other side. You see, things haven't changed. They haven't. And when we begin to accept that, then we start to walk through a new door. And we start to realize, I'm going to stop looking back. But I'm also going to realize that the things of the past are not stuck in the past. The problems of the past are here. The issues of the past are here. They're real. They're every day. They just have a new look. A new way of expressing themselves. And we need to battle that as a church. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, church? Because that is the first step to transformation. Legalism can kill the spirit of the church. But so can acceptance of worldly things. Just like the Sadducees. And we see churches slipping into that mold. And that is what Satan is trying to do. He is trying to rip the church apart. But guess what, guys? As John 1.5 said, darkness will not overcome light. It will not. It will not. And so we as a church can stand strong on the word of God if we stand on the word of God. If we don't stand on the word of God, we're going to easily sway to one direction or the other. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. So, why are the Beatitudes so important? Well, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. All right. I'm not going to... I know the actual story. It was a funny story. It was amongst friends. A friend of mine told me this story. How many of you remember the days on the bus before the tap? Do you remember that box at the front of the bus? You know, where you used to pour things? I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. And there was that box there, right? 
So I'm going to use, you know, I come from a Portuguese background, so I have liberty to make fun of the Portuguese. Um, and the Portuguese here in Toronto say Eglinton like this, Eglinton. I don't know how they got Eglinton from Eglinton, but it was Eglinton is, is what you hear a lot of Portuguese, especially those that, that you know, come and, and, you know, are learning English. You know, it, I, I remember I was on the... I think it was my, Helen was telling me she was on the subway or something, and she saw some Americans, and they go, uh, "Oh, we got to go to Bathurst, <laughs> you know, Bathurst, you know." And, and and so we look at these names, and they're unfamiliar to us. And so anyway, going back to Eglinton, and so uh, there was once, and this is a true story. This is a true story. So here comes this person who comes from a place where you don't have buses like we do. It's just a total foreign place, totally different. And so they need to go to Eglinton. And so this person is an immigrant. They've never really been in Toronto. They've never taken transit before. So they walk on the bus, and this pretend looks like I'm going to use a different culture, obviously, and they walk on the bus and, and they say, Eglinton, please. And, and the bus driver looks at them, and says, huh? Eglinton, please. Okay. All right, so the bus driver, okay, yeah, Eglinton, okay. And, and then, so the bus driver is seeing this guy stand there and not moving. So you know that box where you used to have to put the coin and the money? He starts pointing down to it. And so the Portuguese guy looks down, looks back at him and goes, Eglinton, please. And the guy points down to the box. And so this went on a couple of times, like two or three times. So finally... The Portuguese guy puts his hands on that box, leans into it, and says, Eglinton, please. And the bus driver was shocked. He just said, okay, okay. I hope someone, I hope he told the story to someone, because can you imagine the next time he goes out to the bus, Dufferin, please. I just wanted to show you that we come from so many different backgrounds. So many different backgrounds. And there are certain things that define who we are. Like, I, I'm, I'm very much defined uh, by my Portuguese heritage. Not because I was born in Portugal. And it's interesting, because here in Toronto is one of the few places that if you grow up in one of these ethnic ghettos, you might not even speak any English for years. Like, I grew up in the Portuguese ghetto downtown. And we didn't go to junior kindergarten, kindergarten, right? So we just stayed home in the neighborhood, and we had Portuguese doctors, Portuguese grocers, Portuguese everything, in and around Kensington Market. You know, it was easy. So if you came from Portugal, you lived in the Portuguese ghetto, and everything was like little Portugal, and that's what we call little Italy, little Portugal. And so I did had no idea, no idea, what it was to be here in Canada up until I started grade one, because that's typically. So I went, I went to school, and in grade one, when the teacher started talking, Charlie Brown, wah, 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 wah. I went home and I said, Dad, they don't speak Portuguese. And my parents figured it out. They go, oh my goodness, you've never learned English. I was born at Toronto General Hospital. And I didn't speak a word of English until grade one. 
So my entire being, my entire understanding of what life was back then was Portuguese. I was truly an alien in a Canadian nation, completely, completely different, thinking differently. We thought differently, we thought differently. I remember my, you know, my parents never taught me about Santa Claus because in, in, in Portugal, these days they do because of commercial, but Portu Santa Claus wasn't a thing back then in, for the Portuguese culture, you know? It, it just wasn't. It was a religious day and, you know, presents were like a little pen or something or a car. It was very, something very simple. And so that year when, when everybody start, started talking about Santa Claus, I came home you know, I started learning a little English. And I go, Dad, who's this Santa Claus guy? Like everybody says and say, oh, we got to write letters. You know, all the kids were writing letters. And I'm going, why are we writing letters? And so my dad said, come here, son. He goes, is, you know, is this the guy that sits down and puts kids on their knees? And I go, yeah, 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 him, because he's seen him in the mall. You know, we used to go to Dufferin Mall. It was very Portuguese, and they would sometimes have this, this guy there, right? And we never really ignored it. So we sat there, and he sat me on his knees, and he goes, I'm Santa Claus. <laughs> Don't believe those lies. Like, I'm a little kid. I said, okay, Dad. So, you know, I went to school, and I'd say, guys, you can believe a lie, but, you know, there is no Santa Claus. Oh, I must have been popular on that day. <laughs> but you see, there is, there is an ethos around who we are. Yeah. Right? There is. There is a deep ethos. And you see, that word ethos, we're starting to see it in culture, but it is a word that is, is a Greek word. We see it in the Bible. And it really describes the essence of who you are, your core beliefs and everything that comes out. And so when I harp around, don't look back and think that the days are better, if that's part of your ethos, it's going to affect how you behave. If I start to say, just because there's different types of sexuality today, and you harp back on things were much better back then, it's going to affect how you behave. You're going to be more angry, more skeptical, everything. But 3,500 years ago, they were dealing with that. They were. And when you look at it that way, it starts to actually make you think differently. And that's what happens when your mind starts being transformed, your ethos to change. But you see, legalism and worldliness, the Pharisee and the Sadducee want to creep in and cloud that judgment. They want you to have an ethos that is very different. In Scripture, it says of Jesus, and he came out and went, and as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. The word custom is ethos. I really don't think that it does it justice because it isn't custom. Jesus didn't just go out to the Mount of Olives because of custom. Really? Habit? Cultural? No. He went to the Mount of Olives to pray because he had a deep, deep desire, a drive. That, that Greek word is ethos. He had a drive, a conviction that he needed to go and pray. 
And we see that word, if you ever see the word custom used, that is ethos. We need to have an ethos that has been shaped and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Because then that's what drives us to do things like Jesus did. And that's why he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, right? Because the transformation starts to shape how we think, how we feel, how we view the world, how we view our past, how we view others, and that starts to prepare us on how we deal with the things outside. The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are so important because it does speak to the ethos of what Jesus was trying to get the church to become. Let me read it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember we talked about what the poor in spirit means? It means that by any measure that I have of me being the best goody two-shoes here in Canada and and you compare me to the worst murderer, the worst thief, the worst criminal in jail in Canada, that the difference between him and I is a millimeter apart compared to both of us and God. But our human nature doesn't allow us to be like that. <laughs> you know, it's, I think it's called dunder or dunger. Anyway, if you're in, in psychology, you'll know what I'm talking about. We have this perception that we are better or better at things than we really are. It's true. It's a, it's a natural human phenomena for most of us. Some of us are good and self-aware of who we are, but the majority of times we're not. And so when people say, are you, how good are you at this from 1 to 10? We really, most of us, will be higher than we actually are. I'm a 7 or I'm an 8. But then if you ask everybody else, eh, I'm more like a 4. How good are you at, at squash? You know, I used to think I was really good, right? Oh, I'm, I'm a 6. I'm a 6. I, wasn't, I didn't want to say 7 or 8 because I was too good. And, and then I, I joined a, a board where they rate you. And so I said, you know, where do you think you are? Do you, oh, I think I'm a six. So I started playing other sixes. I got knocked down to a three within a month. Yeah. Yeah. And then it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And sometimes we confuse it, but this is mourning about sin. This is mourning about where the world is at, death. All the things that challenge us. Blessed are the meek because they understand what it means to be poor in spirit, right? The meek. Blessed are those in hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not, not our righteousness, God's righteousness. If you understand what it is to be poor in spirit and you start to realize the difference between me and the worst criminal here in this society is almost negligible in comparison to the perfection and beauty of who God is. See, when we start to have that ethos, in us it is very very hard to be a Pharisee very hard because it's the difference between me and the worst criminal and the most evil person is so small that you can't even see between my hands when I compare it to the greatness and perfection and love and beauty of God how can you 
criticize and point the finger. Many of us are on the cusp of sometimes falling over the cliff and we don't even realize it. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart because you see those who hunger and thirst for righteousness know that purity of heart only comes from Christ's righteousness, not our own. And then the last, the last section which we've been concentrating is blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And then it changes and it starts to talk about you. You see, it goes from the third person to the first person. And Jesus ends the Beatitudes by talking about people in general and then pointing right at you. And I, it's almost like I can see him in blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. But he says rejoice. Rejoice. But he's talking about persecution that comes from living this life. You see, today I want to talk about people who are Sadducees or Pharisees. They can get persecuted too. Especially the Pharisees. The Pharisee in us can easily get persecuted. And so when we go out into the world, how are we to be a light in the darkness? Because I tell you, if you're a Pharisee, you're just darkness and darkness. You start pointing fingers at people, how you relate to people at work, your neighbors, your friends, your family members. And it's so important to understand Scripture. So important. So important to have the ethos that the Beatitudes tries to teach us. Because you see, if you read Scripture through this lens, even when you read, you'll begin to understand what Scripture is trying to speak to you. I have heard preachers use Scripture about evildoers and reference that to people who are non-believers. That is a misuse of Scripture. And I'm sure all of you have heard that. And today we're going to find that out. Because you see, if Scripture says something like that, and you've just read the Beatitudes, there's a contradiction here. Something is wrong. It doesn't feel right. And so I want to dive into that. I want to talk about that today. Because... Let's look at an example. Let's take a Pharisee from the time of Jesus. And let's say we had a time machine. Take one of those Pharisees, especially, you know, those that, you know, dress well, know all the laws inside and out, and have considered all the different ways, ins and out, that you have to live with, those, with, with all that, okay? And we transport them back in time to when Daniel was in Babylon. Let's imagine that. Let's imagine plucking a Pharisee and putting them 
when Daniel is basically has gone through all of the things that he went Chief of what? Not only has he not using his name, but he's using the name Belshazzar, which is really a pagan name after the god, the pagan god of Babylon. So here's the Pharisee. What would be the first thing that he would think? Why would you have a name like that? That first X on Daniel. Then he would say, wait a minute, Daniel. You know, Daniel 5.11 says that he was the chief of the wise, and it lists the different wise. And, and you see, Daniel's written in Aramaic and Hebrew, and in Hebrew, there are four names. And now different translations will have different descriptions. But I'm going to read, and I, I'm not good at Hebrew, so I'm just going to read it anglicized, you know. So please, just... Bear with me. If any of you know Hebrew, I'm probably not pronouncing it right. Just like Eglinton, okay? So I, can, I get that. Okay, so the first word here that, that he was chief over, that he was chief over is Ashafin. You know what Ashafin is in, in Hebrew? It's a wizard. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Daniel, you accepted a job where you have to manage wizards? People who... You know, say things and, and, and with powerful sayings, things happen. You were the chief of those guys? You took on a job like, first of all, you took on the name of a pagan god as your name? You allowed that to happen? I thought you were the guy that basically wouldn't eat meat from the king's table. And, oh, I'm going to only eat, you know. Good on you for what, making sure you eat what you do. But you just took on a job and a name. Like, how dare you? How dare you? And not only wizards, he was the chief of the wizards. He was the chief of the Hartman, the fortune tellers. In the Old Testament, it says, don't go to fortune tellers. Wait a minute. Daniel, pagan Belshazzar, you now work with wizards and fortune tellers? Oh, you're going to hell, buddy. You're going to hell. Oh, and that doesn't stop there. The Kazdim, wait a minute. The Kazdim, that's the pagan temple priests who use astrology. Daniel, who do you think you are? You're a Hebrew. You grew up in the church. How dare you work with these people? Who do you think you are? What's another Pharisee with the, the Maimonides, the magicians, the art of magic? They use the same word in Egypt with the kings. Daniel, what are you doing? Daniel. Hmm. Do you see where I'm going with this, guys? This is hard. This is hard. Because in the church, we've taken our eyes off the fact that there are Pharisees still in the church. There are Pharisees still in us. You see, the Pharisee in the side went to accept the world, went to reject the world, went to be, you know, rigid and legalistic. 
Well, here's a scripture I've, I've seen misused. I, I told you about a scripture that's been misused. It's Philippians 3.2. It says this, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. And then they stop there, you know, like, I've seen this preaching, you know, and they stop there and they don't tell you the latter half because it sort of gives you a clue. The dogs and the evildoers, you know, and they stop there and then they start to talk about the world and how bad the world is and how ugly it is and how, you know, it's us against them and we got to stick together, you know, and we got to do battle, you know, and, and in the States they actually even get very active politically and say we got to band together and band our votes so we can vote this one in and vote that one out. I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote with your conscience. All that's good. But there is, there is a time when we start to misuse Scripture. And what Jesus accused the Pharisees of, commandments of men becoming doctrine. And we have to be very, very careful. Paul was very careful. You know Paul? Remember about getting married? He didn't say that that was a commandment of God. He goes, in my opinion, it is better not to get married if you're that involved as he was in the church as a missionary. He said, in my opinion. He was very careful to distinguish the doctrine from what he perceived as a rule that he lived by. Because when you don't, other people will start to think, well, that's biblical. No, that is, that is the way I have chosen to live my life based on what God has called me to do. And too often, we don't hear from the pulpit that kind of clarity. Especially when something's scriptural like this. And you see Paul, Paul in 1 Timothy 2.7, you see, he was a very wise, wise individual. And that... And instead of looking at Daniel through the eyes of a Pharisee, I want you to look at Daniel through the eyes of Paul. Because Paul has a lot to teach us about how we actually relate to this world, how we be a light in this world. And we're going to go through that. See, Paul in 1 Timothy 2.7 says, For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle, and telling the truth I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So let's, let's dive in. Let's see what Paul had to say about his scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to go verse by verse from verses 9 to 13, actually. Yeah, 9 to 13. Are you ready? Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Stop. Don't associate with sexually immoral people. Sounds good. Don't do it. Right? Let's go to verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Stop. I'm not talking about the sexually immoral of the world. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul, you just said don't associate with sexually immoral people. And now in verse 10 you're saying not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world? Well, wait a minute here. 
What do you mean? I'm confused. Or they're greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. What does he mean? Wait a minute, I'm confused here. First of all, you say, don't associate with sexually immoral. And then he says, but I'm not talking about the world. I'm not talking about the people in the world who are idolaters, who are sexually immoral. I'm not talking about them. The swindlers. You see, only when you're poor in spirit can you understand what's going on here. Verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother who is guilty of sexual immorality. Do you see that? When Paul is commanding us not to associate with the sexually immoral, he's talking about people in here. Not people out there. Because he's saying, well, how are you going to reach them? He's not asking us to be a Pharisee because he himself calls himself the chief of all Pharisees in creating man-made commandments. He's talking about people who claim to be Christians and choose to ignore the word of God, choose to ignore what God has taught them and go live a worldly life and don't care. That is who he's saying, don't associate with those types of people. He's not talking about the world. I hope I'm hitting a chord here, people. I hope I'm hitting a chord here because we have heard too many times the misuse of Scripture in this context. We listen to great names, read great books, and all of a sudden we begin to hate the world. Want to put a a wall around us. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister who is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry, rivalry, drunkenness, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. People who are openly rebellious and know the truth. That is what he's referring to. The Sadducees, if, yeah, that's another way to look at it. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? You get, see that? What do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Right? The discipline. We're not talking about pharisaical legalism. We're talking about actually when people are falling. And Paul, in his other letters, talks about there are some people who become Christian and they go from milk to meat, and that is a process. We're not talking about that. We're talking about open rebellion. When they know the truth, they know better. They've heard the truth, and they continue to refuse to change the way they live. 
That is who the evildoers that Paul is talking about in Philippians. Verse 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil from the evil person from among you. This is where it's at. You see, when you look at Daniel from the lens of a Pharisee, you start to judge him, but now let's judge Daniel, not by the job he has, but how he behaves in the job. Do you get the difference? Let's not judge Daniel by the job he has, but how he does the job. Do you get that? Because sometimes at work, we're going to be exposed to things that aren't Christian. So how do we prevent ourselves from judging in those situations or trying to impose what we believe on others? Because that's exactly what a lot of us want to do. Because we know better. Then you're just being a Pharisee, if I can put it that way. Because the only way that somebody is going to change the way they think, the way they feel, the way they behave, is if they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They have the Holy Spirit inside them. They've surrendered to Christ and are taking a whole new life and been transformed and reborn. That is the only way that what you say is going to make sense to them. With the Spirit. Because why did the Bible say that the Spirit convicts, not us. Not us. I, I, have a, I had a colleague when I, when I worked at one of the banks. I had a colleague that every year would go to Las Vegas. And he was so proud at how good a gambler he was. Now, it might be one of those things where you think you're better than you really are. And he claimed that he was such a good gambler. And he would tell me how he loved going there. And then he can go to the Grand Canyon and go to California. And he could pay for his trip because he's such a good gambler. You know, I was so tempted. You know gambling is wrong, don't you? I was so tempted. You know that a lot of people get addicted to gambling and, you know, it ruins their lives, don't you? Like, you know, the Bible says, you know, so tempted. But I didn't know better back then, but something inside me held me back. No, I shouldn't go there. I shouldn't go there. So I just talked about the things that well, how was the Grand Canyon? I would ignore the gambling. You know, just, how was the Grand Canyon? Oh, yeah, yeah, I like the Grand Canyon. I was there too. How was California? I've never been to California. I'd like to go there. Daniel. Daniel 1.8 says this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. He resolved. That means it was an inner, internal conviction. You understand? That was his choice, a, a free choice. Just like well, I remember once we, uh, uh, Pastor Dino and I did uh, a young marriage in, um, in Niagara Falls. Uh, Pastor Melody, I believe you were there too. And all three of us. Yeah. And we had different, different uh, uh, courses. And I remember teaching about how in Hebrew there is no word for obedience. 
There's no real word for obedience in Hebrew. It, the, the, only, the closest word is hear and respond, and I'm not even describing it well if somebody was a linguist, but it's really listen and respond, you know? And so when the Bible talks about obedience, it's like listen and respond, and based on your response, that is how you're judged, right? And so there's a free will aspect to it. And here, that's what resolve means. You've got to resolve, you've got to respond. And so Daniel responded by saying, I'm not going to eat the food. But later on in verses 12 and 13, he basically says to, if I can put it in modern day terms, his boss, his new boss, and he says, look, I know you asked me to do it this way, but can I suggest another way, please? And test me. If my way does not bear fruit in your eyes, then you can do whatever you want. Did you catch that? Daniel wasn't saying, based on what he eats, it's my way or the highway and do whatever you want to me. But he had a conviction and resolve, and he was wise. He was wise. Let's look at Daniel again, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So let me give you some context of the story. So this is, you know, um, the king of Babylon has a dream, and he warns all of his wise people, you know, the wizards, the fortune tellers, all those people. Now, Daniel at this point isn't chief of them, okay? So they're, they're still there. But he hasn't been made chief. He's made chief later on. And so he says to them, Daniel was one of the wise men. One of the wise men in, in, in that, in that uh, world. But he wasn't the chief yet. And so the captain was going out to kill them because none of them could interpret or would interpret the king's dream. And so how did Daniel respond? Well, it says here that Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. I remember a sister who came to me once and she, and she stopped me out there. And she goes, Julia, I know you work in the corporate world and so do I. And whether it's in the corporate world or whether it's not in the corporate world, whether it doesn't matter what business you're in, you're going to hit the same things. What do you do when things and policies go against what you believe as a Christian? Here's my answer. Use prudence and discretion. Use prudence and discretion. So what did Daniel do? Verse 17 to 18. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to who? So what did Daniel do? First he answered with prudence and discretion. He was wise. Then what did he do? He went to his brothers. To do what? To pray. Do you see that? He didn't fight. He didn't raise a ruckus. He didn't say, that's evil and, ah, oh, who cares what the king says? He didn't go to them and say, let's take off before they find us. We'll go back to Palestine and hide in the mountains and in the wilderness. He didn't say that. He didn't say a lot of the things that we in our gut reaction would say. He went and said, let's pray. And then in verse 24, then he went and he says, this, this, is, this is the thing. Here's Daniel. 
Look at Daniel's heart in verse 24. See, Daniel wasn't the chief yet. And these are the people who will persecute him and probably have persecuted him. And look what he does. He went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the men of Babylon. He went and said, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. You know what he's talking about? Don't go and kill the wizards, the fortune tellers. Don't kill them. Don't kill them. You see, Israel was gone. That grand experiment, I call it a grand experiment because it was the people of Israel who chose to be under a king. It wasn't God who wanted them to be under a king. They chose to have a kingdom other, under a human king. A theocratic state. Where you had prophets, remember the prophets, and the prophets of Baal, judgment and the law, that was gone. He is now in the world just like we are. He could have easily said, yeah, those are sinners. <laughs> Let them go kill them. And I'll just say, hey, king, don't, don't hurt the Jewish. The Hebrew guys, they're the good ones. Get rid of all those other evildoers that in the law says, you know, are wrong. He doesn't do that. He goes, don't kill them. Don't hurt them. Don't hurt them. And then, here's something that Daniel does. He waits for the opportunity. Waits for the opportunity. You see, when you're prudent and use discretion, you let the Spirit of God guide you, there will be opportunities where the light can shine. You might be in a workplace where things are difficult, where you have to put up with things that don't make sense, that you know are ungodly, that you know that the Lord has prohibited any, any form of, of thought or deed to be involved in any of those things, and you know how evil it is. But if you're like Daniel, with prudence and discretion, patiently waiting for the right time, verse 27, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians. This is after he just said, please don't kill them. Don't hurt them. See, that's a peacemaker. You see that? There is a peacemaker. He says, they can't show you anything. But verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. See that? Wait for the opportunity. We all need to be wise and use discretion in our lives outside with our neighbors. We all do. If we start to judge or run or just accept, you're not being a light. You're not. You're just living in the darkness. Just different types of darknesses. To accept the lifestyle, you're living in darkness. 
point it out and judge it and start putting people down or going to other people in the office or at work, other fellow workers and saying, you know, and oh, that, that's bad and evil, da, 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 da. that's equally as bad. Daniel didn't do that. He didn't put people down. Why? Because he was poor in spirit and he's a peacemaker. Don't feel too bad. I was like that too. I was. But you see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, at times, they did have to face persecution. Where they could, they used wisdom, discretion, prudence. But there were times, there were times where they just had to stand their ground. And so sometimes you can choose, I don't want to eat the meat. Sometimes you're going to have the opportunity to use discretion and wait and God gives you the time. Sometimes it's in the persecution that the light will shine. And that's where it can get scary. Right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not bow down to the idol. There are times that we face where we say, I will not go there. I am sorry. I can't do that. I can't. I will not. I draw the line there. I am sorry. You feel that I... Yes, essentially that's what... We're just following our hearts. Do what you will. But know this. If we're punished, that doesn't change anything. And we know how the story goes. Or with Daniel. When those same people that he had spoken not to destroy plot against him, right? Story goes that they said, no one should pray unless to the king or the pagan god, right? That didn't stop Daniel, and they exposed him, and, and what did they do? They brought him to the king, and the king had no choice to try and punish him. That's a line you do not cross. You see, when we start to look at Daniel, especially, we've always seen as Daniel as, you know, the book that, that talks about the future. You know, a lot of people talk about Daniel and, and how it ties into Revelation. But the first six chapters are actually teaching us how to be a believer in an unbelieving world. When I read Daniel with that lens, I, wow. It's actually teaching me how to be a Christian amongst people who have no idea what I believe in. And there will be times where I have to basically say, no, I can't do that. I can't. And see, here's the difference. See, Daniel ended up being the chief of the wizards. You see, there's a difference between things that you have to accept and do yourself versus things that you do that are outward from who you are. Do you understand that? There's a difference. 
There are times where I have to relate a policy or do something like I could just as easily say, I'm not going to send this email. A new policy came out in the company. Something I wouldn't do as a Christian. It's something that promotes a type of lifestyle and, 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 and backs up that type of lifestyle that I'm not supposed to follow. So I'm not going to forward the email. And they can fire me for that. I don't think that's what Daniel was doing. That's okay. The authorities have said that I've got to send to my staff this email, and I will send it. But I'm not doing it. Do you see the difference? And you say, yeah, but you sent it to your staff. But if your staff or your coworkers or your neighbors or your friends know who you are, know how you live, know what you believe, because it isn't by one day, by one action, it's about the entirety of every day that you've spent with them. If you have been a light every single day, every hour, every second you've spent with them, they don't know that what that email says is something that has nothing to do with you. They will know. You see that? The Pharisees won't know. They're just looking on the outside. But that's why the wizards didn't like Daniel. The enchanters didn't like Daniel. Not only because he had favor with the king, but because he didn't buy into their stuff. I have to manage you because the king wants me to manage you, but I'm not, it doesn't mean that I have to believe in what you believe or take what you do and accept it and, and take it as my own and do it myself. No. Okay, you want me to write budgets for you? Okay, I'll get the budgets out. You need a building where you can do your stuff? Fine. The king tells me I have to go and construct that building, but I don't have to step in it while you're doing whatever you're doing. And then you may get persecuted, just like Daniel was persecuted. But through that persecution in the lion's den, the king then begins to see who God really is. You see, out of our persecution, and the way we behave under persecution dictates whether there's light there or not. And that is actually when the light shines the brightest. I'm not saying we shouldn't use discretion and those things. But when we're in the world, we are going to face these issues. And what I ask you today is, don't be the Sadducee that just accepts it and says, oh, you know, it's better for us to just, you know, live in harmony and we'll just figure out a way how do we bring our beliefs in with their beliefs and we all live together, you know. Then the other way is basically to say, how dare you... I'm not sending this email. I'm not doing this. Or the other way is to basically live the light and let it shine. And know where to draw your line and your conviction. And you know what? For some of us, that line is in a different place. And let's not be Pharisees when we have other Christians that maybe feel uncomfortable with certain things 
whereas we feel comfortable, and vice versa. Because maybe that line is different. And that line can be different. And this is where we get into some of Paul's teachings here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23-33. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You see, now you know who the evildoers are. It's not the neighbor. It's not your co-workers. It's not your boss. It's not the people who write the policy. It's not your company. Those are your neighbors. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Do you see that? You can be out in the marketplace and see stuff. What is Paul saying? with it. Is he? Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Well, you got pig in the market beside the goats and the sheep. How dare you? When I was downtown, um, there was a a street, and there was a, uh, at one point in time, on one side of the church was a fortune teller right beside us. And on the other side of the church was a witchcraft cafe and bar. And we were right in the middle. So we had people coming in one door beside us, getting potions, and you can see they're making potions on the other side coming in and getting their fortune being told. I, I almost felt like, this is, boy, I can understand where Daniel was coming from, you know, it's like all this stuff around you. Did we go in there and raise a ruckus? No. Were there people who would go to the fortune teller? Yeah. You know what we did? One day, the, the sec- the, not the second cup, the um, Starbucks manager, because, you know, in Starbucks, their policies don't really align with our biblical teaching, a lot of them, said, we'd like to um, have meetings, but our store is too small. Right? And so the ministry staff prayed about it because... The policy is, is they, they don't rent out the church. We have the same policy. We don't, we don't rent out the church. But God makes exceptions. And they felt, wow, we're going to make an exception here. This is a weird exception. We don't allow other people in the church to use the space as they want. But we're going to allow this outside company whose policies really, really look bad when you read them come in and use the space. That was God opening up the door for us to be a light. Because every week when they would come in, they'd see us, they'd interact with us, and they'd learn about what we believe. And when we started going to Starbucks, they all started seeing us. 
And they knew what we stood for. They knew we were conservative. They knew what we, what we had. But they were the outsiders who needed to see the light. Do you see that? Eat whatever is sold in the market. Verse 26, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Man, I had to experience that with blood sausage. <laughs> However, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. But not for your sake, for theirs. Do you see that? How many of you have heard of Amy Grant? You know? She... I think a year or two ago allowed a cousin or someone in the family to uh, have their gay wedding on her estate. And so th this is an interesting one, right? Well, you want to be, you want to invite them in one sense, you want to invite them to know the truth, but in another sense, you don't want to endorse what they're doing. And this is what this is talking about. See, Paul isn't saying you should just accept whatever people do. He's not saying that at all. He's saying you shouldn't judge them. You shouldn't mock them. You shouldn't try to teach them. You should just try to let the light of Christ shine through you. Let the Spirit do the conviction. All the other things will fall into place when they surrender to Christ. And that you shouldn't, out of conscious or feeling bad about something, say anything. Unless they say, hey, you know what? I sacrificed this place to Buddha this morning. That's not, now, this is where Paul steps in and says, you know, that's when you might say something. You know what? I'm uncomfortable with that. And Beckett, I forget his name. I forget his first name. Beckett is a Christian who was a gay man and, and practiced that gay life for all the time, and he's, he stepped away from that. God saved him. And this is what he said. What Amy Grant did was wrong. There's nothing wrong with her inviting her cousin over to dinner. There's nothing wrong with her being a light to her cousin and loving her cousin. But when she allows a marriage to happen on her property, in her home, a gay marriage, she is now endorsing that. Do you see? Just like Daniel had to draw the line. We have to be prudent and smart and wise and draw the line. Paul isn't saying just let it go like the Sadducees. He's saying there is a line to be drawn. And that is what it is to be a light. And you may be persecuted for that at work, and here. But be persecuted at work for the right reasons. 
Be a light every day and people will know you're a Christian. You don't have to force your beliefs on them. That's not your role. Your role is to behave and act out the beliefs that God has given you in your own actions, in your own the way that you're supposed to. Paul is saying don't say anything. Remember we read 1 Corinthians 5? The evildoers aren't the ones that Paul is saying to kick out aren't the people from outside. He's saying those inside. He goes on to verse 29. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? See that? If I partake with thankfulness, verse 30, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all in the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. You see that? Because I'll tell you one thing, there's two different Julios that come out at work. The Julio who's always criticizing the company, who's always saying that, you know, what you believe is garbage and what I believe is better. That is wrong. I'm wrong. There's that Julio, or there's the Julio that lives the life. Not perfect. Says sorry when a mistake has happened doesn't judge, realizes that the company that he works for or the neighbors that he actually lives by or the school that he has to go to, they have a different set of of thinking, a different set of values, a different ethos. But guess what? If you live your ethos, you don't have to say anything. You won't have to say a word. There are people at work that every time they swear, they say, oh, excuse me, sorry. I, haven't, I never told them to say, don't swear, ever. Don't swear around me. I've never had to say that, ever. Yet they, when they do, they actually say, sorry. Why? Why? I don't convict them. I don't force them. In fact, in my department, I probably have the power to say, you will not swear while we are in meetings. Actually, I do. For several dozen people, I have the power to do that. But I don't. And some do. But those who get to know me realize that that's not who I am. There's something wrong with their behavior with mine. But they also know that I won't judge them. So many of them just say, sorry, excuse my language. And then they'll swear again, because it's just so natural for them. I mean, when, before I became a Christian, I think every third sentence there was a swear word coming out of my mouth. I think if anybody back then told me how I should behave, I probably would have told them where to go. You see... The Bible has a very, very different perspective on what it means to be a light in this world. 
And when we read Paul, it's very different than what we've heard from some people from the pulpit. And we have to be careful. This is the word. You read it. You don't believe me? Go read it again. First Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 10. You, you go read it and show me that I'm wrong. You go read Daniel, the first six chapters. Prove to me that I'm wrong. That is your challenge. You go prove to me that I'm wrong. We see, if we live like Daniel and by the principles of the Beatitudes, this is what Paul's telling us. He's telling us that we will be a light. We will. We will be a light. Let us stand. Now, like I said, it, we are all at different stages in life, different places. We are not necessarily in the same situation where we work, where we go to school. And, we, and even, in, even Paul, I'll read this. First, 2 Corinthians 6.14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So he's not saying, you know, accept and go yoke yourself with unbelievers. He's not saying that at all. In fact, what Paul is saying, he's going back to, you know, Deuteronomy in chapter 22.10, where he says, don't, don't put an ox and a donkey on the same yoke. Why? Because you're going to get a crooked line. What is he talking about? He's, he's talking about closeness, binding, letting yourself be led astray. You have to have an understanding of what the Spirit allows you to get into and what he doesn't. I'll give you an example. There's a guy by the name of Sam Shimon, Shimon, I can't remember anyway. I've seen him, I've seen him on, on, on YouTube. The guy can debate with any Muslim like I've never seen anybody debate. He knows the Koran inside and out, backwards and front. I, like, this guy is incredible. I could never do what he does. So I would never try. Some of us have a calling to be in certain places, and we have to recognize that. So I'm not saying blindly that, you know, we're all Daniels or all Sam Shimon's, or whatever his name is. But you have the Spirit inside you, and He guides you, and with prudence and wisdom, Live your life every day. Don't hide the fact that you're a Christian. Be who you are. People will know who you are. And the evildoers that Paul is warning you against isn't the ones that are out there. It's the ones inside. And he warns you against... Philippians 3, 2 isn't talking about evildoers. He's talking about the Pharisees. The people who want you to follow a, a whole list of, of rules. We don't need those in the church. He's saying, if you have Pharisees in the church and they don't want to listen, kick them out. If you have Sadducees in the church 
and they don't want to listen and follow God, kick them out. And slam the door behind them. That is what Paul is talking about. We hold each other accountable. Not by rules made by men, but what? By the fruit of your life, by how you live your life. And we hold each other accountable. And we also recognize that we can't be unequally yoked outside either. We have to be careful of that. So that Paul is being very clear in his teachings about that. But I do say that we, as Christians, many times are a terrible example in the world. Sometimes it's by compromising, but other times it's about being, you know, pompous Pharisee that who we are, that we know better. And then there are those of us who struggle and don't know what's the best approach and the best way. And I want to pray for you. I want to pray for those who are struggling with that because not every situation is easy. These are complex situations that you find yourself in. So I'm going to ask everybody to bow your heads. Bow your heads. No one's looking up. I'm looking out, but no one else is looking up. Are there people here who say, Lord, I struggle with that. How do I be a light? I don't want to be a Sadducee. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I struggle with that at work. I need to recognize this. Put up your hand. Amen. Amen. Yes, I see those hands. Yes. You see, we need to be a light. And we need to understand how it is to be a Daniel and a Paul. And most importantly, how to like Christ to live through us. I'm going to pray for you. And then I have one more thing that I'd like to do, but let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Oh, the word. As sharp as a two-edged sword. Some things are hard to hear. Other things our freedom and understanding and depth of understanding of your word and your truth. And Lord, today we had many people here put up their hands. It is not easy. It is not easy. How do we live a life pleasing to you without judging others? who don't hold to what we believe and who do not know and recognize and acknowledge who you are. That is not easy. And so, Lord, I pray for the people who put up their hands and anybody else who's struggling. Lord, make yourself known. We are confessing that we ha do not have the ability 
we want to be peacemakers. We want to be prudent and discerning and wise. Because you've placed us all in positions in neighborhoods, communities, workplaces, schools. We're there for a purpose. Teach us like you taught Daniel. Help us to be your servants. And I pray for each and every one here in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. Brother, let's, let's do something a little uplifting. Stand up. Now, this is our call. This is your call. And then after this, there's one more thing I want to do. But are you ready to stand up for Jesus? Not like a Sadducee. Not like a Pharisee. But like someone who's ready to be a light in this dark world. Amen? Amen. Let's do it.